Turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1. Page 855 in the Bible in front of you, if you didn't bring your own. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 26, and we'll go to verse 38. This is the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying... And tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. Let's pray. Lord, it's it's summer. And we know that for, for, for many, this isn't just a, a dry season. This is a dry season spiritually as well. With all the distractions of vacations and things to do, we can, we can grow dry in, in our faith, Lord. I pray that this morning would be a time of refreshing. As we turn our eyes to Christ, be reminded of, of who He is and what He's come to accomplish, Lord, restore us. For those whose faith has, has wandered, would You restore them? For those who have trouble believing your miracles, Lord, would you give them faith? Lord, as we look to your word, would you remind us of of the mystery of Jesus? One who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the one who is truly your eternal son and who is truly a man just like us. Lord, help us to trust in this, Jesus, above all else. Help our faith to be rooted strongly in him. Give us faith today, in Christ's name. Well, as we've been working our way through the Apostles' Creed together, you've probably noticed that there is a lot more to be said about Jesus in the Apostles' Creed than there is about God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. And that makes sense given what this creed is. 
It's, it's so old as a creed. It basically just outlines for us what distinguishes Christianity from Judaism. Or, or probably better to say it shows how Judaism is fulfilled in Christ, which is what our faith is. And so now, and for the next several weeks, we are in the Jesus Christ section of the Apostles' Creed as we're working our way through this ancient confession. Last week, we saw that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is our Lord. This week, we as a a congregation are going to try and grasp what it means that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So this is our... Christmas in July sermon, isn't it? Tried to get Saunders to sing at least one Christmas song. He said, no. <laughs> Church, be grateful, all right? The Lord has provided you all and me with someone who will tell me no. And that, that's good. That is a good thing. It's a gift to the church more than you even know. <laughs> but, but July really is it's the best time of year to look more carefully at Christmas, And the incarnation, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The heat of the summer is the best for this because we can examine this very, very important doctrine without any of the distractions of the holiday season. So so let's do that today. Let's examine this doctrine with open hearts, ready to receive God's truth in faith. All right? So today we're just going to ask and answer two questions. That's, that's, that's our format today. The first is this. Does the Bible really teach that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? That's our first question. The second question is, why does that matter? Why, why does it matter that we would confess this as Christians? The first question is, is easy. We read it just a moment ago. What is typically known as the Annunciation of the Lord, when the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would be the mother of the Messiah. And we see in this passage in Luke, Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary, or at least that's what Luke said was going to happen. He said these things will happen. Matthew, in his gospel, affirms that it has already happened in the same way that Luke said it would. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, just to get a glimpse of this, Matthew says, led along by the Spirit, he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, so virgin, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So there you go. The Bible does teach that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary teaches it, and so we confess it. But but I want to examine, in order to kind of pull this together for us, I want to examine the Luke passage a little more closely, because it is in the Luke passage that we get a little closer to our second question today. Does it matter? So we're going to look at what the Bible teaches, we're going to examine it, we're going to exposit it, and then we'll look at why it matters. So we're going to start in verse 26. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Keep your Bibles open. We will be moving straight through this text. We won't get all of it, but we'll get the, the gold bits, the diamonds. Luke 1, 26 to 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now stop right there. Who is Ga- who, who's Gabriel? Who's this angel, Gabriel? Well, it... 
Some of you were there. If you remember, in our Daniel study on Wednesdays during COVID, it was Gabriel who came to Daniel, the prophet. Gabriel came to Daniel to tell him about the restoration of God's people. So it was also Gabriel that told Daniel that the Lord had shown favor to him. Listen to what Gabriel tells Daniel. This is from Daniel chapter 9. He says, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. And look what he goes on to tell him. He says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people. So Daniel, talking about the Jewish people, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So that's a big promise, isn't it, from Daniel? A big, hefty promise. An end to sin, atonement for iniquity, and the bringing of everlasting righteousness. Really big promise. Big words here. Things to look forward to. We, we could think of Gabriel, just, just from that bit in Daniel, we could think of, of Gabriel as the good news angel. The good news angel. Th- through Gabriel, Daniel was given revelation about the Messiah's future coming. That's what those big news things were. He had a future coming of the Messiah. That's what was being promised to him. And Messiah's coming is the good news. That's the gospel. And then the next time we, we hear from Gabriel or we see Gabriel in the Bible is not any time else in the, in the Old Testament. So we go from Daniel all the way to Luke. And at the beginning of Luke, Daniel goes to John the Baptist's dad. Not his dad yet, but he will be. And he's going to tell this, this man, Zechariah, of John's coming. John is the prophet who will come from Zechariah and his wife. John the Baptist is the one Gabriel tells Zechariah. He will turn the hearts of Israel back to God and prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. So John is the forerunner of the restoration. Daniel heard about it from Gabriel. John's dad heard about it from Gabriel. And then through Gabriel, Mary is given revelation here in our text about how her child would be the Son of God, the promised Messiah. Again, what is this? It's good news. Messiah is coming. That's why I say Gabriel's the good news angel. If Gabriel shows up to you, that's good. Rejoice, okay? Don't be afraid. He's bringing good news. Gabriel is the good news angel, and he probably won't show up to you. His tasks have been accomplished. So I'm focusing on Gabriel here in our text more than Mary, at least at first, because we often lose sight of what's happening here in, 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 this, in the incarnation. Especially at Christmas time, we think of the, the statues part of things. But, but we're losing sight, if we do that, we're losing sight of what's happening in the big story of the Bible with this announcement that Gabriel's bringing. Gabriel, if we look through Gabriel's eyes, Gabriel helps us to see the big story. The gospel, the good news of the arrival of Messiah. Because Gabriel essentially announces it three separate times to three separate people. So don't, don't lose sight of what's happening here. 
God is bringing restoration to all of creation. This is a cosmic announcement coming from an angel whose purpose in the universe, this is Gabriel's job, is to stand in the presence of God and carry messages from God to humanity. And so far, the only messages we've ever seen him bring are good news messages about the coming Messiah. And our in our passage here in Luke, he's come to announce the most important announcement ever. The presence of God is coming to be with humanity, to reconcile all things back to himself. So don't overlook Gabriel. He's the first person introduced in this story. And he's at the very top of the story. Luke, the gospel writer, wants us to see his name. And it's not just an angel, it is the angel Gabriel. He's named, he's listed, he's at the top. Don't miss him. The second most important aspect of this passage, especially when we're thinking about the coming Messiah, is the geography. And so Luke puts this next. So you have six months, angel Gabriel, city of Galilee, or the city of Nazareth in Galilee. Do you see that uh, there in, in verse 26? Coming to the, the city or the village of Galilee. It's a little, or a city in Galilee named Nazareth. It's hard to get straight. But what's significant about this is its insignificance. So this isn't Jerusalem. This isn't one of the major cities of the world. It's not one of the port cities in Israel. This is Nowhereville up in the Nowhereville territories. But when it comes to Luke's telling of the story of Jesus, and that's what he's doing here, you have to tell where he's from. And so Gabriel goes to Nazareth. The third thing a careful reader would see is that Gabriel is sent from God to Nowhereville in Galilee to a virgin. See that next? She's not married, never been with a man. There's no way she's pregnant. And did you notice she's not even named yet? Name's coming. But, but at the beginning, what's, what's more important, what Luke wants us to see as, as striking, is that she's a virgin. So Gabriel, the good news announcer, sent from God to Hickville to a heretofore unnamed virgin. And this virgin is betrothed to a man. And here we get the man's resume. His name is Joseph. He is of the house of David. Now that is really important. This is key. If you're telling the Messiah origin story, everyone knows Messiah absolutely must come from King David's lineage. So this is where we learn that Jesus' adoptive father, his legal father, has the right pedigree. It's got to be from King David. Joseph is from King David. Joseph is to be his adoptive father. We're good to go. And now that all the really important prophecy-fulfilling information has been front-loaded into, into the story, now we can learn about the girl. So look at the end of verse 27. The virgin has a name. and Her name is Mary. Now this is important. It's not insignificant that she is named. The most important aspect, so you really have to see, is not her name, but that she's a virgin, betrothed to a man from David's lineage. That is key. 
But we also need to see that Luke isn't just telling us a legend. It's not just some girl. He's giving us information that we can verify. Or at least when when he, he wrote this gospel, he wrote it to a man named Theophilus, and he was giving Theophilus information that Theophilus could verify at that time. So so Luke gives us the time of the announcement, the sixth month. He gives us a precise location, that little village of Nazareth in Galilee. He gives us the names of everybody involved, Mary, betrothed to Joseph, who comes from David's lineage. Well, that, that, that narrows it down. Everything is set up, right? So that's the framework of the story. And now we get the announcement. Let's look at the announcement, starting in verse 28. Gabriel says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, I want to pause here because this is one of those places where in the history of the church, translation really, really, really matters. Okay, this is really important here. If you grew up Roman Catholic, if you, if you are a part of the reason why we put an asterisk by that word Catholic when, when we say the Apostles' Creed together, you perhaps have uttered the phrase, Hail Mary, full of grace. Probably more times than you can count. And you did that either out of habit or because you were taught that Mary is a source of grace. And you were praying in order to receive grace from her because you needed it at that time. Well, the source of that teaching is right here in verse 28. Only that's not what Gabriel said, is it? The original text, if we go all the way back to the Greek text, when Luke first wrote this down, you would get two Greek words. I'll put them up here. I think I have a slide for that. There you go. All right, so you get two Greek words. The first is an imperative. It's a command word. And it can be translated as rejoice or have joy. Most translations just say greetings because that word in common usage was a cheerful greeting. Say, hey, what's up? It's a good day to see you. It's good to see you. It's kind of a, a happy greeting. And there are other places in the New Testament where it's not used as a greeting, but instead that same exact word is used as a command, rejoice. And so some of your translations say rejoice, and some of your translations say greetings. But really, that first word isn't the problem. It's the second word in this phrase that has created an issue. In the Greek, that second word there is a passive Verb. That means something has happened to the individual. We see that in, in the passive voice in our translation, where our translation says, favored one. That shows someone has shown favor towards Mary. Mary has received grace. She has received favor. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we have the exact same word. And this is how it's translated in our Bibles. So he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So God's grace has blessed us. We are recipients of his grace. He has shown favor toward us. And that's what's happened to Mary. She has been shown favor. She has received God's grace. But the Catholic Bible doesn't translate this word as a passive verb, meaning favored. 
they translate it as a noun with an adjective. Mary is the one who is full of grace. And the only Bible that translates it that way in all the world is the Catholic Bible. Because the Catholic English Bible is translated from the Latin, which way back in the day, a scholar who wasn't very good at Greek translated this word wrongly into Latin. So, so when the Roman church translated this word as full of grace instead of favored one, thus began this strange journey where, where speculation began to take place around the person of Mary and, and somehow she was sinless and, and she was to be so venerated and so forth that she, because she was full of grace, overflowing with grace, she was a source of grace to us. And if we ask her, she'll give us some of that grace. See how a bad translation led toward this terribly idolatrous practice? See, this passage isn't about Mary. It never was about Mary. It's about God and God's faithfulness. If God is the one showing favor, then the focus is on God because he is the source of grace. And certainly God did show favor towards Mary. I'm not saying she's not important. She's very important. Absolutely God showed favor towards her. Gabriel tells Mary something that very few people in the Bible were ever told. The Lord is with you. This is a tremendous grace that Mary has been shown. But we would be grossly missing what's happening here if we were to think that that's the point. The favor, the grace that God is showing Mary is, is that she has been chosen by Almighty God, the one whom, if he wills it, it happens. Almighty God has chosen this little girl to be the one to bring Messiah into the world. And we see this all begin in verse 31. Look at verse 31 with me. She says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. All of this, this passage right here, this is all Messiah language. And, and it's all drawn directly from two places. The first place, the bulk of this passage, we see coming from that promise to David, God's covenant with David, that we read in 2 Samuel 7. So in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 14, you get this promise to David. God telling David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And then in verse 13, he shall build a house for me, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See that forever language? So he's from David. He reigns forever. God will be to him a father. He shall be a son. Do you see all of that in our passage in Luke? You get God as a father to the Messiah. The Messiah will be a son. It's a forever kingdom. The second Messiah passage that Gabriel is quoting here is from Jacob's blessing to his son Judah, way back in Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob, the patriarch Israel, 
He's, he's giving his final blessings to his, his sons. And he tells Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. And then look at verse 33 in our passage. He will reign over the house of Jacob. Right? So Jacob giving the blessing. The son who comes from Judah's line will be the one who rules. Start to see this? So this descendant of David, who is a descendant of Judah, will reign over the house of Jacob. He is Israel's anointed king. Everything Gabriel tells Mary comes directly from the promises of who Messiah will be. And this is all very human language. It's exalted language, but, it, but it's, it's human. It's showing how important Messiah's role will be. He will be the one who, like David, establishes God's kingdom on the earth. David was human. And his offspring, the promise said that he would come from your body, David. That's a, that's a fleshly promise. A human promise. David's offspring, Judah's offspring, would be the king. And he was expected to be human just like David was. But Jesus, the son of Mary, the promised son of David, isn't just human. We don't just have verses 31, 32, and 33. We also have verse 34. So, so we wouldn't know from this passage, if it weren't for what happens next, that Jesus is also God. So, so Gabriel comes to Mary, Gabriel gives Mary this promise, and Mary could have just said, okay. But she didn't. Bless Mary. Mary's ignorance brings us a blissful revelation. Look at verse 34. Mary asks the question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, if we didn't know, it seems like Gabriel could have just said, oh, well, this will happen after you marry Joseph. Right? And you two have your first kid together. Right? Messiah had to come from David's line. Joseph is in David's line. Up to this point, no one really knew for sure that, that Messiah had to also be divine, although the apostles are teaching us that he did. But up to this point, that was kind of unclear. The expectation of Messiah at this point was that he would have a really great big kingdom, a kingdom like David's kingdom, only more powerful, more worldwide, and longer-lasting. But in response to Mary's question, Gabriel did not say, it's okay, Mary, Joseph will give you a son when you consummate your marriage. That's not what happened. Gabriel said something absolutely unheard of and unexpected. Something that should immediately cause us to rethink who this Messiah would be. Look at verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That's divine language. Now, this overshadowing of the Holy Spirit that's supposed to happen to Mary, that did happen to Mary, this hasn't really happened up to this point to a person. But it has happened. Most importantly, this happened at creation. 
So look back at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. I'll put it on the screen for you. You don't have to flip there. Genesis 1, 2. The earth was without form and void. This is the very beginning. After God created the heavens and the earth, this is, this is the description of what takes place. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you have the Spirit of God, the power of the Most High. He's overshadowing the unformed earth. And then what happens next is creation begins to take place with every word of God. Every word of God. Let there be, let there be, let there be. And there was, and there was, and there was. You have a very similar dynamic here with Mary. Mary's womb is like, like, okay, analogous to, like the unformed waters of the first creation. There's no life in Mary's womb. She's not been with a man. She's a virgin. Unformed womb. There's no life but there will be. And what will be is the refrain of this entire passage. You will conceive and bear a son, and he will be great. The child to be born will be holy, son of God. Nothing will be impossible with God. You see all the will be's? God speaking these things into existence. This will happen. Let there be light, and there was. These things will happen. And what does Mary say? Let it be. Look at verse 38. In response to all that will be, in verse 38, Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. It's as if if Mary is is those waters of the unformed creation abiding by God's command and saying, yes, Lord, let your word bring forth the beginning of of the new creation in me. And that's what happened. The eternal Son of God became man inside the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it all happened according to the word of God. That is why we confess together as a church and why the the church of Christ has confessed for generations and generations and generations. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We confess that because that's what the Bible teaches. Now, a couple caveats before we continue. This was not a sexual union between the eternal father and Mary. I would not have to say that if the cults weren't saying that. Right? But since they're teaching that in some cases, I just have to remind you, that's not what's happening here. Nor is it right to say that the Spirit is Jesus' father. All right? Even though he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, we do not say that the Spirit is father to Jesus. It's getting all our Trinitarian categories completely thrown out of whack. The way that we are to understand this, so the affirmation is to see the similarities between creation and the incarnation. In the beginning, back in Genesis, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, created all that is from nothing. In the beginning of the new creation, 
the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, brought forth the incarnate Son in the woman and from the woman. Not from nothing. From the woman. The child was like any other human in that he was born of a woman. He grew in his mother's womb from an ovum like a human does. He went through the birth canal and took his first, first breath like a human does. He cried and he felt pain and he felt hunger and he felt thirst. He was like any other human baby. But, we knew that was coming, but this child was unlike any other human in that he was uniquely created by God by the power of the Spirit from the womb of his mother. So, so yes, all of us, Jesus included, are knit together in our mother's womb. But every one of us, everybody in this room, has a biological human father who contributed to our conception. Jesus did not. Jesus is the Son of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. All right, so that's just to clarify how that works. I can't draw a diagram. <sighs> but but we, we can confess the truths, and the Apostles' Creed puts it best. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Stick with that. Don't try to go further than that, but don't say less than that. Now, the second question I told you we would address is, why does this matter? Right, so is, is, this, just, is this just a fun legend? Something that, that we celebrate alongside of Santa and family and Christmas pageants and little, little girls dressing up like Mary and laughing when they drop the baby at Christmas stage. Did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? in order for the rest of Christianity to work? Is this essential? Is, is Christianity even diminished if we don't have this doctrine? I would suspect that nearly 100% of you in this room would agree with the apostles and with the Bible and with church history and with your pastors, this is a necessary and essential doctrine. At Del Cerro, and this isn't just true for our church, this is, this is true for most of evangelicalism, the issue for us is not that we're afraid of miracles. We believe in these types of miracles. And, and it's not that we're embarrassed by these sorts of things, like a, a virgin having a baby. There's a lot in the Bible that is miraculous that we accept at face value. It's a sort of characteristic of, of evangelicalism. We evangelicals are not the type who would deny the miracles of the, of the Bible. We leave that type of apostasy to the Episcopalians. Their problem is that they don't believe what the Bible says. Our problem is not that. Our problem is we don't even care why it matters. Because we don't know why it matters. And friends, it does matter. This is essential to our faith. It does matter that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It does matter that he was born of the Virgin Mary. And we're going to look briefly for the rest of our time at three reasons. Three reasons why this matters. The first is this, Messiah. I'm just going to put it in, in single words if you're, if you're taking notes. First is Messiah. Second, new creation. We've talked a little bit about those. And the third one is, this is just the way that God works. This is the way God works. See what I mean by that in a minute. First, let's look at Messiah. Here's what we know from Scripture 
had to be true about Messiah. The Bible, and if you're wondering, this whole book is about him. It's about Messiah. It's about the promises that he would come. It's about his coming, and it's about the effects of his coming on creation. This book is about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So here's what we know from the Old Testament had to be true about this promised king. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, our first promise. Genesis 3.15 says that the offspring of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. That's a messianic promise. It's a Messiah promise. There would be some human child whose identity was somehow more closely tied with the woman than with the man, and that child of a woman would ultimately defeat Satan and his work. There was also a promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12, Genesis 15, the promise to Abraham, and again, we're just accumulating the things that would be true of Messiah. We knew he had to be born of a woman. We know that he has to come from Abraham because in Genesis 12 and 15, God tells Abraham his offspring would bless the nations and his offspring would inherit the kingdom, the land. That's a Messiah promise. There would be a human who comes from Abraham, an offspring of Abraham, who would fulfill God's promises. And then there was also that promise to Judah that we looked, that we looked at. When, when Jacob tells Judah that from him, there would be one who would rule over Israel and all of the brothers and all the tribes. And then there was that promise to David that we read in 2 Samuel, where the offspring would come from David's line, would be from his lineage. All of these promises of God regarding the coming Messiah involve human lineage. Jesus had to be born. He had to be born as a descendant of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, from the tribe of Judah, from the lineage of David. If, just your thinking caps on, your imagination caps, if God had simply turned himself into a man, and we know God could do that if you so choose, if God had just turned himself into a man, or appeared as a man, he couldn't have been Messiah. Think about it. God promised that Messiah would come in this way, and so he had to come in this way. God could not just show up as a fully grown man with no lineage whatsoever. He had to come the way that he came. Through a human lineage. But because Messiah also, and we're going to look at these promises later on as we move our way through the creed, Messiah also had to bring atonement for sins, as we saw in Daniel 9. He had to bring everlasting righteousness, as we saw in Daniel 9. And because he had to bring restoration to God's people, he had to be more than a man because no man could ever have done that. No man alone can atone for the sins of the world. And we're going to see more of these issues coming into play as we work our way through the creed. I don't want to say everything yet. But for Messiah to be all that he was prophesied to be throughout Scripture, he had to be truly human, and he had to be truly God. And in God's providence, the, the way that God accomplished the messianic mission in Jesus was through bringing him into the world Conceived by the Holy Spirit, truly God, born of the Virgin Mary, truly man. 
If he's going to be Messiah, this is the way to do it. That's not the only significance of this miracle. One of the really important things we need to understand about Jesus the Christ is that he's the new Adam. And we see this thread, this storyline of, of the, 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 the new Adam throughout, throughout Scripture. He's the beginning of the new creation, the restored creation. The old creation has Adam created on the sixth day, right? So you have day one, two, three, four, five, six, Adam. He's the pinnacle, the climax of creation. And then Adam sins and brings corruption to creation. You see the, the picture, you have the pinnacle of creation and then the corruption that flows down from Adam throughout all of creation. The new creation begins with the new Adam, Jesus Christ, as the firstborn of that new creation. And then he brings restoration to all things that had been previously created. Jesus is the beginning of the restoration of creation in the same way that Adam was the beginning of the corruption of the old creation. Through Adam's pride and his striving to be like God, Adam brought sin and death into the world. And so he brought sin and death to all of us. But through his humility, not his pride, his humility, the new Adam brought grace and life and righteousness. The new Adam did not consider equality with something with God as something to be exploited, as we see in, in Philippians 2. And this is the Christian Standard Bible. I love the way they translate that. He did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. So man trying to be God ruins everything. God becoming man restores everything. And so, so because Messiah is the new Adam, he can't be of the old Adam. He doesn't come from Adam. He's, he's parallel to Adam. He's, he's a, new, a new start. He doesn't come from Adam's seed. Yes, he comes from a woman, but he comes from the Holy Spirit as well. Genesis 5 helps us to see kind of what's happening here. Genesis 5, verses 1, and, 1 through 3. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. That little line in verse 3 is really key. Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, Seth. So every son born after Seth would be in the image and the likeness of Adam. Yes, there is a derivative likeness to God, but it's through Adam. But this is key. Jesus was not born in the image and likeness of Adam. He was born in the image and likeness of God. He's a new Adam. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. You see the difference? As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, led along by the Spirit. He says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, not Adam, or spiritual is first, but it's the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. 
as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, Adam, like Seth, born in the likeness and image of Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ, when we're born again by the Spirit. So, so we have Messiah's promises that can only be fulfilled if Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And we have these new creation promises, this restoration of all things promises that can only happen through the new Adam, who can't be of the old Adam. So he must be born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Right? Third and final implication. This one's simple. Hey, doesn't it just make sense? Doesn't it just make sense that God would begin the restoration of all things in a way that is utterly unique? That he would do it in a way that makes Christ's sonship to the Father undeniable? And in a way that makes his humanity equally undeniable? I know you probably didn't expect to hear me say that the virgin birth makes sense today, but it does. It really does. God is using this event as a sign of the coming restoration. He said that that's how it would happen. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The virgin birth is a sign that God is up to something very, very, very big. Very big. And it is just like him that the way that he would come into the world, Emmanuel, God with us, would be totally miraculous and undeniably him. And while he lived among humanity, we've seen this as we studied Matthew, there would be sign after sign after sign pointing to the reality, this man is Messiah, the son of the living God, and he's making all things new. And when he died and he rose again from the grave, again, that's a big miracle. That's a sign pointing to the reality that Jesus truly is the son who was sent forth by God, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It makes sense. There is a, a logic to God that's consistent with himself. When God intervenes in history, it is always obvious that it is God who is working. When he rescues his people, he opens up entire bodies of water. He causes animals to talk when people won't talk for him. He makes hundred-year-old women to have babies. He crushes kingdoms with the blow of a trumpet. That's just how God works. It only makes sense that, that when God himself would enter history, he would do it miraculously. If God wills it, he does it. Because he's almighty. He's the maker of heaven and earth, and he's the maker of the new heavens and the new earth. And in the same way that God miraculously began this new creation in Mary, listen, even now, God's new creation work is continuing. Through Christ's work, 
God is redeeming humanity. He's reconciling fallen Adamic humanity. All who were born of Adam, by God's grace, he's bringing into Christ. And here's where I want us to to look back at Mary as our last word today as we close. In our passage in Luke, Gabriel came to Mary, and he did not once ask her for her permission for what was about to happen, did he? There was was no question of whether or not she would yield to what God would do in her. What Gabriel came to tell Mary was grace, 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 grace. God has shown you grace. He has privileged you. He has favored you. He was telling her what she would have the privilege to take part in. To bring Christ to the world. And what was Mary's response? Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. You want to really translate that? I'm a slave of the Lord. We're we're a little gentle in our English sometimes. She said, I am a slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. See what Mary is saying? She's saying, I'm, I'm here to be servant to you, Lord, a slave girl to you. I will do whatever you require of me. Let it be according to your word. Listen, the way that God is bringing restoration to all things, even now, the way that God is reconciling the world to himself is through Christ still. And he does that by causing us to be born again by the Spirit entering into us, by the Spirit's power, we're born again into Christ. We are born of Christ by the Spirit so that we may bring Christ to the world. So what should our response be? This is where I'll say, let's be like Mary. Our response should be that of Mary. Lord, let it be. I am a slave of God, a servant of God. My very being is for your purposes, God, for your glory, God. May God bring Christ to the world through me. May the new creation continue in me. Let it be according to your word.